calling you from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. I'm here with Tom Golden, a licensed clinical social worker with 30 years of experience, which means next year he really starts to hit his stride. And he's the author of a number of great books, Swallowed by a Snake, The Gift of the Masculine Side of Healing, and The Way Men Heal, as well as Helping Mothers Be Closer to Their Sons, Understanding the Unique World of Boys. And you can find Tom's work at Men Are Good. Com. We'll put, of course, the links to that in the low bar. Tom, uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. I'm glad to be here, Stefan. So Tom and I first met, uh, I think it was in 2014, at a men's rights conference in Detroit, uh, where we gave some speeches. Uh, both, I think, I think were excellent, and we'll put the links to those as well. Mm. And for the new listeners uh, who may not really know what men's rights are or just associated with the term patriarchy, uh, we're going to talk about some developmental issues with regards to testosterone and aggression and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to start. Uh, Tom's going to take us through the um, the men's rights 101, uh, some of the major uh, hot uh, button issues that men face in the modern world. So uh, if you'd like to take it away, uh, I'll throw in snarky comments from time to time. Good, please, more snarky comments are better. You know, the, the bottom line is men deserve compassion and choice. And I think that it's easy to see that women deserve compassion and choice, but harder for us to look at men in that position. But there's all sorts of places where men don't get compassion and choice. You know, domestic violence is one, you know, where the, the world thinks that domestic violence is big men beating up on small women, when the research really tells us something a little bit different, and that is that it's it's really a two-sided story. It's both men and women. But somehow it gets turned into men not even being there. And so men lose the capacity to have compassion and choice over that issue. Um, suicide. You know, men are 80% of completed suicides and no one seems to really care so much. I'm on a uh, commission for suicide prevention in Maryland and I keep hammering away over and over again, you know, look, it's 80% males. Shouldn't we spend 80% of our time looking at what you can do for men? And they kind of go, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, you know, you find this kind of indifference to the needs of men. And you'll find it in all the different issues, whether it's suicide, domestic violence, or what are some other ones, Stefan? Circumcision well, is a big one. A circumcision is a huge one. Female yeah. circumcision is illegal, and millions of men are circumcised every year perfectly legally, and in some cases even subsidized by the state. Yes. And it's crazy stuff. So it's just a matter of looking at uh, men deserving to be treated like people. It, it's not a matter of, you know, I want rights. It's a matter of just men deserving to be treated in a compassionate, in a compassionate sort of way. Well, and there is the general feminist argument, which I agree with, that there are times when there are disparities between male and female experiences that can't always be explained away by mere biology, which we need to look at and attempt to close whatever gap there is as possible. So, of course, men men are dying five years earlier than women, and nobody really knows uh, the cause. Maybe it's stress, and they die of just about every major ailment sooner than women, and there's not a lot of exploration as to why. There are, of course, countless government agencies dedicated to specific female health issues and almost none for men, even though men are dying earlier. And yeah, I think it's that's not almost. Tragedy. It is none. You know, there's seven commissions in the country for women's health, but zero for men. If you go to womenshealth.gov, you get a pretty website. If you go to girlshealth.gov, you get a pretty website. Go to menshealth.gov, you get file not found. Same thing with boyshealth.gov. Nothing's there. And that tell I mean that just says it all right there. Bingo. 
And in war, of course, uh, 98% of the casualties are men. Uh, men are subject to the draft or selective service. Men are 93% of workplace deaths. Uh, boys are falling behind in school and uh, hitting higher education at lower rates, uh, which is not being even thought about, let alone addressed. There are huge issues of paternity fraud, as you point out in one of your videos, Tom. A third of men who go for paternity testing find out they're not actually the father, uh, that the woman has lied or kept information at best is uh, what we can say about that situation. And the man uh, sometimes is still on the hook for child support, even though he's not the biological father. And in the UK, I believe it is, the, the, the uh, man has to get the permission of the woman to do paternity testing. Can you imagine uh, a woman having to get the permission of a man to uh, deal with something so uh, intimate and so personal? It's uh, shocking. And uh, it's the kind of thing that until you know it, until you notice it, it's sort of like the air you breathe. You don't even think about it. Yes. Yeah. And the only reason I found out about it was because the work I was in, I had worked with lots of men and lots of men who were traumatized. And so it became very clear to me very quickly that people responded to these men very differently from the way they responded to women in the same kind of situation. I'd like to also mention something that is pretty important, and until you notice it, it, again, it doesn't really hit your consciousness, and that is the way men are portrayed and dealt with in movies. Uh, There's something you could, I guess, reasonably term the Schwarzenegger principle. Some (laughs) godforsaken soul with too much time on his or her hands uh, went through all of Schwarzenegger's films and uh, hit up the death count. And um, I think it was 500 plus uh, have have met their demise at the Burly One's uh, meaty fingers. And uh, (laughs) 98% of them, not counting aliens, 98% of those victims are men. And when you start watching movies, you'll really notice some of what happens. That uh, they're called mooks by some people, but basically these giant tides of uh, men who are just thrown against the hero so that he can mow them down or chop them up. They're very just disposable uh, men in order to enhance the um, uh, the males, uh, the sympathy for uh, the male. And um, if you look at uh, how women are portrayed, if you really want to motivate a man, you put a woman in peril. And if the man doesn't decide to go and help the woman, then he's a coward and he's a terrible guy and uh, his gene pool ends with him and he gets handed a white feather and, you know, has to go live in the woods or something. <laughs> Whereas, of course, if the man is in danger and the woman runs for help but doesn't go and get help him, she's not uh, given that same right. uh, particular uh, approach. Right. And uh, if, if you want to advance the story, you put the woman in danger and then that's going to motivate all the men. But if the man's in danger, uh, not... Uh, not so much. Um, if you're in a horror movie, uh, you want to be a female virgin. Boy, if you're a female virgin, you have this like Star Trek shield around you. No chainsaw, no no axe can penetrate. <laughs> it just bounces uh, completely off uh, you. And um, you can look at the disposable male and how it's reinforced in movies and that the men aren't supposed to have any preferences of their own. I was just watching a Brad Pitt movie um, uh, about tanks uh, and uh, the men are just like, you know, well, we got to go do what we got to go and do. We got to man up. We got to prove ourselves. You know, women don't have to prove themselves. Women don't have to say, I'm a real woman. Whereas, of course, men, and we'll talk about this in a sec uh, with regards to teenage years in particular, men have to prove themselves in order to have value. Women simply have to exist. Yes, that is so true. And the research now has caught up with that idea, and they call it precarious manhood, you know, where the the researchers now say that across the world, across the globe, that boys and men have to prove themselves over and over and over again in order to be considered men, whereas girls don't have any kind of 
proof like that. As soon as they hit menses and they've gotten through puberty, they're women. And so this puts a different spin on boys and, and bringing them up and understanding them and loving them for who they are. And I, like most people, blame the sperm. It's the sperm disparity. The eggs are rare. The sperm are common. Uh, yes. As you point out, if you have uh, uh, 10 women and uh, 10 women and one man, you can repopulate. If you, you, you can make 10 babies and, I guess, one dozy man. Yes. And if you have uh, 10 men and one woman, you can only produce one baby. So those tribes that tried to be egalitarian in everything to do with gender ended up with the egg rarity and the sperm abundance ended up kind of withering away. And that basic biological fact, which has conditioned so much about how we have evolved emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and so on, is a basic fact that needs to be understood and acknowledged. Now, in the modern world, of course, it's less uh, relevant, less important, because we don't mm -hmm. pump out kids like, you know, cannons from a, a cannonballs from a cannon these days anymore, because infant mortality is down, and we can be reasonably assured that our children are going to be able to take care of us in our old age, it's pensions, and so on. But back in the day, you know, the women had to be the baby-making machine, and that rarity and scarcity combined with the fact that human beings uh, take an ungodly amount of time to develop and grow. You know, a horse yes. can walk within a few days. Human beings take like a year or more. So you need the participation and involvement and voluntary um, engagement of the woman in order to raise your children successfully. So she's got to be there voluntarily. What yes. that means is rape is not a good biological strategy. Even if we take the moral aspect out of it, you've got to get the woman engaged in wanting to raise your children, which means you've got to woo her. And the woman, by being disabled, you know, childbirth and, and uh, breastfeeding and so on, well, she needs resources. You know, women were generally disabled for like 20 years having kids. So the man has to prove himself. The woman only has to be fertile. The man has to prove his ability to gather resources. Yes. And what you're describing is the whole theory of gynocentrism. And there's a great site, gynocentrism.com, put up by Peter Wright, a buddy of mine. And it's just wonderful. He describes this whole issue where basically what it is is that women and children need to be protected and provided for at the expense of men. And this is actually something that's helped us. I mean, you know, the whole idea that men would expend themselves, would be disposable in order to save women and children has created a culture. I mean, if we didn't have that and we didn't have women, we wouldn't have a culture. We'd be sunk, you know. So the whole thing of gynocentrism is just critical. And it underlies this issue of discrimination against men. And it underlies the issue of not being interested in men's emotional pain. Because if men are there to protect women and to provide for them, they're not there to emote. <laughs> you know? They're not there to, to be unhappy. God, there's this quote by this guy, uh, Peter Barron, where he talks about the issue where men cannot be dependent. You know, they sim simply cannot be dependent. And if they are, if men are dependent, then suddenly the world sees them as not being worthy of getting help. You know, so there's this irony. It says, you know, if if you're strong and say, I'm fine, then no, you don't need help. But if you say, I do need help, then you're not worthy of it. <laughs> you know? Well, if you need help, it means that you're in the biological position of consuming resources rather than providing resources, which is the exact opposite of high sexual market value throughout most yes. of our evolution. Yes. There's a quote. Is it okay if I read a quote? Yeah, please do. Yeah, there's this guy, Peter um, Marin, who wrote a, an article about homelessness. But he says here, to put it simply, men are neither supposed nor allowed to be dependent. They're expected to take care of others and themselves. And when they cannot or will not do it, 
then the assumption at the heart of the culture is that they're somehow less than men and therefore unworthy of help. And irony asserts itself by being in need of help, men forfeit the right to it. Right. And I I remember as a kid reading a book, uh, Great Disasters of the 20th Century. And in it was the Titanic. And in the Titanic was put forward front and center the ethos, women and children first. Men die a frozen tundra Leonardo DiCaprio style death in the deep of the ocean, women and children first. And I remember thinking like, oh, (laughs) so... I'm not even on the list here. You know, it's like, it's not women and children first. Then, you know, let's get to save as many of the honorable men as we can. It's like women and children first, period. Nothing after that. And I'm not even on the list. So I remember when I first um, started hearing about patriarchy, uh, I just remember flashing back to that book where I read it. I was like six or seven. I read this book and I thought, wait a minute, I'm in charge. I'm not even on the list of people to be saved. How on earth is that being in charge? That's the deal. That's the deal. Now, it is also instructive uh, because another thing that I remember reading about in that book was um, the First World War and the White Feather Campaign, which I'm sure you've heard about. And just very, very briefly, um, men who didn't volunteer for service, I think it was in England, women would walk up and down to find any able-bodied young man not in uniform and hand them white feathers, which were symbols of cowardice. And uh, this has been portrayed a bunch of time in, in movies and books and so on. And in a sense, you're killed by a feather. I mean, it's kind of like a strange weapon to to hold and i remember when i was uh, a kid just trying to figure that one out and it took me many many years to figure it out let me run past a particular scenario and see if it makes sense according to to what you think tom so why would a man go to war rather than be handed a feather a feather is not going to remove your arm you know it's not going to give you shell shock it's not going to uh, uh, detonate your inner ear or anything like that but i think the answer is that if you go to war let's say you've got a 50 percent chance of survival then a woman will mate with you if you return but if you don't go to war and a woman won't mate with you and the white feather is like you are barred from the eggs no eggs for you <laughs> and um so if, if you go to war and survive, then you have a chance to reproduce. But if no woman will breed with a man who doesn't go to war, then you face gene death. In other words, the feather ends your entire lineage. Whereas if you go to war, at least you got a 50% chance yes. of continuing your genes afterwards. And I think that helped me sort of understand it, if that makes sense to you. Yes, it makes all the sense in the world. I agree 100%. And that is the great tragedy. Uh, and this is, of course, why gynocentrism is important, because women, you know, men propose, women dispose. Uh, yes. You know, if you simply look at who asks who out and who pays for what and who has to display the resources, there are not a lot of women out there buying Lamborghinis to impress men, right? I mean, they're not showing excessive resource abilities in order to gain um, uh, access to, to men. Yes. And I think that fundamental thing that... Um, uh, that men ask and women say yes or no uh, means that it is a seller's market when it comes to reproduction, and that is not men in the uh, in the seat of power. Yes, and it means that men are in a competition against each other. You know, I mean, we compete against each other, and are in fact men are are biologically geared to compete. You know, that's that's what we do. Well, and it sort of explains some aspects of biology that remain confusing to people. And uh, I'm going to unabashedly say that race is not a social construct. And we'll get to some of the biology of its evolution, uh, especially in the womb in a moment. But um, when it comes to things like IQ spreads, you know, ironically, male IQ spread is more like a breast and female IQ spread is more like a penis, right? It's more (laughs) centered around the middle. It's, you know, hey, don't blame me. This is just the way the math pans out. I mean, I may have doodled a little, but nonetheless, this is the way 
uh, it pans out that that men have a, a scattershot with regards to intelligence, which is why you have more male low intelligence and more male higher intelligence on average. Lots of exceptions, but then, yeah. and that's because nature is more prone to experiment with men because the rewards of hitting the gas, you know, the rewards uh, uh, of high intelligence are so great that it's worth the risk for low intelligence, whereas for women, biologically, I would say it's less because uh, they're on the receiving end of what is being proffered. And so all of these uh, males desire to make risk, to take risks and so on, uh, entrepreneurial desires and so on, resource gathering requires an intense competition. Very hard for men, as you point out, to be in solidarity with each other because we're all competing for the prettiest eggs on the block. Unless we're on the same team. And yeah. that's where men feel close. Uh, you mean in, uh, in war teams, in sports army, teams, and yeah, yeah. When you're on the same team fighting against someone for the, with the same goal, men get close because they feel safe there, you know? I wonder if that holds true when there are women in the platoon. <laughs> I wonder if that's okay. changing things a little bit because they're all surviving each other to get back to the egg. They're all helping each other survive to get back to the eggs. But if and the eggs are right so there, anyway. they're going to help the egg more than yeah. they're going to help the guy next to him. That's the problem. Right, right. Yeah. So let's start talking about uh, the developmental aspects uh, of men. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that we all start off as female and then, well, there's a bit of a U turn uh, for some. <laughs> Yeah, it's this great thing called a testosterone flood that happens two months in utero. And uh, it's this increase in testosterone that changes the baby boy's brain and changes some baby girl's brains. You know, that's what makes things so interesting and so complicated is that this testosterone flood is not just for boys. I, I think the estimates are about 80% of boys get the flood, 20% don't. About 15 to 20% of women get more testosterone than other women. So the impact of this flood changes the boy's brain into what the researchers are calling a systems brain or a systems sort of brain where the systems are important to them, knowing where to put things together, where to take things apart, what changing one little piece of the system does to the rest of it. You know, think Legos. You know, I bet you've seen little boys, you know, sitting and playing with Legos for hours. They're playing with that system. And you've probably seen a little girl do the same thing. But mostly the boys. You know, it's this whole thing they know now. And the, the, the way they found out is really fascinating. You know, they, uh, one of the researchers in Great Britain, I think, um, took a bunch of amniocentesis samples that the hospital saved for years and years and years. And he measured the testosterone in those samples and then found the babies who were now grown, um, you know, young people, school-age kids and older, found those and started to look at what are the differences between the high testosterone and lower testosterone and came up with some really fascinating connections. Um, but one of those connections is the systems brain versus the empathic brain. Now, it doesn't mean that men can't be empathic. We can. I'm a therapist for crying out loud. You know, I'm, I'm more on the female side. So we're all a blend of this stuff. It's not like it's black and white. You know, we have to think in terms of blend and gray, not um, one way or the other, because you can't put all men in one pile and all women in the other. But most men will have more of this testosterone flood, and most women will not. So it changes us and the way we, we then grow. We, they know now that there's what they call the mini-puberty, which is right after the little baby is born, the baby boy gets another burst of testosterone that lasts for, you know, I think up to a couple of months, maybe more. 
Uh, but they don't even know exactly what that does to masculinity, but they know it's involved somehow. So we're right on the edge of things and understanding um, what's going to happen. But the important thing is that our biology does determine some of what goes on. You know, they know now this testosterone flood impacts four things. It impacts uh, our sexual orientation, who we want to sleep with. It impacts our gender identity, who we think we are. Do we think we're a man or a woman? It impacts um, our play behavior, which are huge differences in behaviors. The little boys play versus the little girls play, and it impacts aggressiveness. So all of those things, they're fairly sure now, are involved in uh, being determined or at least partly determined by this flood. Now, you know, genetics is also involved. They're, they're finding that the SRY gene uh, is probably involved in masculinity also. Um, it's one that uh, they know turns on the testes, I think. But now they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is involved in, in uh, masculinity um, characteristics, just like the testosterone flood. So they're finding all kinds of things as they go along. And we're just at the very tip of the iceberg to understand what's happening. But the important thing is that our, the way we are is not just socialization. You know, it's no. our biology, it's our genetics, it's our socialization, it's our hormones, it's our brain differences, all of these things rolled in together. It's just amazing, you know, what you find. Yeah, and I, I sort of have the perception that we can talk about uh, Vince Felitti's fantastic Adverse Childhood Experiences study uh, in a few oh. minutes, because I know you've, oh. you've looked into that, and I've had him on the show uh, really? to, to talk about it. Yeah, he's uh, it's fascinating stuff. I've got an entire presentation called The Bomb in the Brain talking about this stuff. But um, there are cues that the environment is going to give to us about how we should optimally develop before we're even born. If the mother is undergoing a lot of stress, then it seems likely that the child is going to grow up slightly more aggressive, slightly uh, more punchy and even the girls may have slightly more masculine characteristics if there's want or or stress then it means that uh the uh, the men are probably absent at war or has you've been taken over or there's some sort of scarcity so you're going to want to be more aggressive in your pursuit of resources this all starts from the very beginning of things and then of course after birth if there's no father around uh, girls end up um uh, developing uh, menstru menstruation sometimes a year or two years earlier because, again, we're looking at a situation of scarcity, of male absence, and therefore you want to pump out as many kids as possible for, right. you know, you're going to do a scatter shot rather than a laser approach to raising children. So there's a huge amount of um, epigenetics, right, which is the relationship. You know, when I was a kid, your genes, you just photocopy, push the button, and out it comes, and that's the way it is. But now, of course, we know that genes turn on and off relative to environmental cues and that yeah. is something that we are not born out of concrete we are born out of plasticine and you can get molded significantly by experience and none of this is designed to uh, infer any kind of biological determinism knowledge is power the more we know Correct. about this stuff Correct. the more we have choices yes exactly right but it is fascinating all the interplay you know the hormones will turn on genes sometimes the hormones will change behavior behavior changes the hormones and it's just all of this stuff together is just amazing you know so let's talk about testosterone, which uh, is, um, I guess, chief demon among certain people's perspectives of the world. All the yeah. So um, yeah, you know, you and I, of course, uh, having less hair means uh, slightly more testosterone, as far as far as I understand it. A well worthy trade for me, since uh, you Amen. have to be kind of punchy to make your way Amen in the world all, these days. But um, let's talk about testosterone because, of course, most people think, to, as I did for many years, that more testosterone means more aggression. And I think you found that that causality is uh, backwards. Oh, yeah. You know, they found that the uh, testosterone is very different from what Alan Alda assumed as 
us being testosterone poisoned. And what they're finding is that testosterone really is about striving for status. Striving for status. So men are have eight to ten times more testosterone than women. They're going to strive for status in a different kind of way than women are. Now, how does testosterone go about helping us strive for status? It does a bunch of things. One of which is it reduces fear. So people who have higher testosterone, their fear levels are going to come down. It also increases our willingness to take risks. So scratch head. Okay, who's more likely to succeed? Someone who's willing to take risks and who's fearless or someone who's going to sit on the sideline and worry about when to jump in? You know, I think we know. They've also found... Well, well, sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. if that were the case, then we'd have no fear whatsoever because there is an evolutionary strategy called let the guy take the risk. And if he fails, I'll get the girl. So, you know, <laughs> you're going to have you're going to have both uh, floating around as we see in the human soup. Everything's relative. And testosterone right. is the same. I mean, it makes Sometimes you, you lose your, your risk. Right? There you go. I, I can make this jump. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you that happens because, I mean, that's we have this thing that says, I can do this. I can do this. In fact, they now know that there's stress resilience built into testosterone so that when you do fail, it says you can do it. Keep trying. Keep at it. Keep at it. You know, think what's his name? The light bulb guy, Edison. I mean, he just over and over and over and over again. And part of that is testosterone pushing him. He says, you can do this. You're, you're, you're okay. Keep trying. Especially the, during, especially, sorry to interrupt, but especially during the time of initial sexual market value. Like I think of the risks that I took when <laughs> I was a teenager. Like I look back through the tunnel of time. No, whatever you do, it doesn't <laughs> matter whether you can cross that train bridge and the train doesn't cut. Well, don't do it. You know, but now, of course, I've, you know, I've achieved my sexual market value. I'm a father and all that doesn't matter as much. But boy, when I was a kid or in, in my teens, that's when you, you know, you get this teen immortality bulletproof thing because that's, I think, where it's at its highest. And that's good old testosterone's helping out there. The other thing they found with testosterone that's fascinating is threat vigilance. What this means is that when someone's status is threatened, if he's got testosterone, the testosterone says, don't let him do that. Challenge that. So, And they did a gender study about this, and they found that the men were much more likely to defend their status than are women. Women simply are not, you know, what? Why would he be upset about that? Well, the guy's upset because his status has been challenged. And his testosterone says, don't let him get away. You know, get back at that guy. So we've got all of these things going on. The testosterone is just so far different from what we ever thought. In fact, if you look at the research and all the things that are going on, you realize that men really are good. Men are fine the way they are. You well, know? And that, that is something that, again, in, in sort of to revert to the popular media thing, which is where a lot of people get their impressions oh, yeah. of the genders. Uh, I remember watching, I think it was a Murphy Brown episode where two guys were struggling over status and uh, the Murphy Brown, Murphy Brown character basically said, why don't you just whip out your penises and measure them, right? And that's not then that, of course, is a sort of an idiot um, perspective on on what it is, because to say, well, you know, male competition for status, male competition for excellence, male competence uh, for, uh, and, and desire for system building is somehow petty and immature. It's like, hey, do you like civilization? Do you like not having wolves eat your babies while you sleep? Hey, how about them walls? Aren't they kind of cool? I like them quite a bit. Do you like having a phone? You know, a lot of this comes out of male status seeking, male resource gathering, oh. male system building, male competition competition, yes. all of these. Would you like, hey, how's air conditioning? Do you like that epidural so you don't have to scream blue murder while giving a baby? You know, thank male competition. But no, it's all about whose penis is bigger, which completely misses the point. Yes. 
Yes, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So, you know, all, what I was trying to say is that all of this stuff, all this research about testosterone and the testosterone flood and whatever, shows us a very different side of men. And it's it's in contrast to this whole toxic masculinity thing that we see so prevalent in the media, in academia, and in even our legislations. You know, it's it's like there's something wrong with men. They need to be more like women, and then the world would be a better place. Yeah. Yeah, more wars now than ever. But anyway, so but the, <laughs> the other thing, too, that's interesting, which I think people mistake both for men and sort of free market principles as a whole, is that men compete. Yes, absolutely. We compete. However, yes. we compete to make the world comfortable for women and children. Because yes. the man who can make the world the most comfortable for women and children has the highest sexual market value. It's not competition like I want to hit you on the head with a log. The competition is, can I outbid you in making the world comfortable for women and children? And, and the more successful the man is, the more women tend to hold the man in contempt. Because all the dangers have gone away, so male competition appears to be unnecessary. But I think we'll find as civilization moves forward, uh, particularly in Europe at the moment, I mm -hmm. think we're going to find that just because the world is safe uh, doesn't mean that male vigilance is no longer necessary. Uh, and if we then scorn men and men withdraw from guarding the frontiers, from recognizing external threats and so on, I think we'll find that the world is going to get just a little bit less comfortable quite quickly. I think the stock in masculinity is going to go up pretty soon. Yeah, I think you're right. Right. So um, with regards to testosterone and aggression, Tom, you've, you've talked about uh, this, and I, if you can elucidate on this a little bit more, I think it'd be very helpful. Well, it's not, as far as I understand, your, the thesis that, that you work with or that you've researched, it is not that extra testosterone breeds aggression. It's the other way around. Well, yeah, they, they found that uh, the assumption always has been that aggression and violence were somehow related to testosterone. But what they found more recently is that it's actually the aggression that raises the testosterone, not the testosterone raising the aggression. And so, you know, the whole thing gets thrown out the window. The, every piece of research that's trying to link aggression and testosterone is pretty much inconclusive. You know, if you read the, the meta-analysis of all of it, they kind of say, I don't know, that some of it maybe, but no, it's not conclusive. We don't have that, that attitude at all, but we do know that it's related to striving for status. And it makes so much sense. Because if you look at men almost in any sphere, they're striving for status. It, you know, the, the monk, the Buddhist monk will strive for enlightenment. The criminal male will strive for the best crime. And, and the football player will strive for the NFL. I mean, but the, we strive in our own niche. You know, we strive in our own niche in the way that we are want to do. You know? Oh, yeah. A lot of the stuff, particularly with men, is the, um, you know, opening umbrellas makes it rain kind of cause and effect stuff that, that goes on. Because it is, uh, it's sort of like saying, well, you, you get the cortisol, you run away, and then the bear appears. It's like, nope, first the bear <laughs> appears, then you get, then you run away or whatever it is that you're going to do. And when a man is in a situation of competition, when he is in a situation of um, a status seeking, status striving, uh, then uh, he's going to need that extra juice of uh, assertiveness is probably a better way of putting it. Because, you know, way back in the day when our IQs were lower and our foreheads were uh, slopier and our hairs were even, our arms were even hairier, aggression usually meant physical aggression. But now aggression means outmaneuvering people in the market. Place. It means coming Absolutely. out with a better particular slogan. And it's not 
men versus men, because as you point out, uh, teams uh, are very important. Um, yes. People yes. do compete within Apple, but they compete with Microsoft. They compete with other companies uh, in right. particular. So right. uh, it is not that men are against other men. Men are more than willing to work together. If the sum of their working together is greater resource accumulation and status than if they work singular, which is why men do mate, make very good uh, teammates in sports and in war and other places. So it's not yes. men versus men uh, at atomistically, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I found that out from my work with men and finding where their friends were. I mean, the men become so close. I work with a lot of police officers in, and they become very close with the men they're with because they're shoulder to shoulder, doing the same job, working for the same goal. Their lives depend on each other, you know, and that's where men feel close, not a face-to-face. God, Stephen, when I first started doing therapy, right after I got out of grad school, you know, I'd, I'd sit and do face-to-face, right, and it worked great with the women, but it didn't work so great with the men. And it, it was obvious that I was making them feel uncomfortable. And it took me a long time to figure out that eye contact means something very different for men and women. You know, eye contact for, for women means, oh, we're close. But for the man, it means challenge. Hockey has a face-off. Boxers face each other, you know? I mean, that's where we, the face, so if you sit in therapy with a man and you face him and you look at him, you know, it's like he doesn't feel so comfortable in that spot. Anyway, no, attempting attempting to read the facial expressions man to man is usually an act of dominance rather than an act of empathy. Yes, because yes. Uh, it's it's often win lose uh, in those kinds of interactions. Maybe that's why Freud put the couch and staring away from Absolutely. Freud, particularly at the beginning. That's I've learned quickly that, you know, oblique offices are much better with men. They like it when you can sit shoulder to shoulder almost, you know. And here's something else that's, to me, kind of heartbreaking about the state of masculinity at the moment and maybe throughout history. And I think we're actually in a pretty good place for being able to have these kinds of discussions uh, at the moment. Uh, So we have more opportunity, I think, with the Internet now without the gatekeepers uh, than we've had in the past. Uh, I remember you've probably heard this both from uh, clients and, and from readings in the media. How many times do you hear that men say, my best friends were in the army? The closest I got to people, the the, the most intimate uh, and connected relations I had were when we were under fire in the army. And those relationships, they can last a lifetime and they tend to be hard to replicate in other situations. And what I mean, it's great that they have those relationships, but what a terrible thing that it takes war to bring men that close, because you see in war movies there's a, a common sort of, it's become kind of a cliche now. Uh, it happened uh, in uh, Fury, the, the Brad Pitt movie. It happened in Saving Private Ryan. That the tough alpha leader at some point will go off into the bushes and cry. And we accept that man is crying because he's got blood on him. And because there's shells going off. And because he's grimy. And because he hasn't bathed in three weeks. And because he's facing death every day and mutilation and dismemberment. And because everyone's depending on him. So he's allowed to cry. And because we also know he's going to get up off his butt and go win the war. Right. Right. So we'll give him that moment. He's earned it with four years of facing constant death. He's earned a 30-second cry. And we're we're okay with it as long as he uses that to build himself back up to go out and kill more people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So – Let's talk about the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is uh, one of these great untapped resources, I think, for a lot of social scientists. Some are definitely working with it, but um, we really need more information about it. Uh, I wonder if you could talk to people, um, you know, what it's about, how it came about, and what some of the conclusions are. It came about in an interesting way. You know, the fellow you had on was doing weight loss 
stuff for Kaiser, I think. And uh, he was really successful. Some people were losing huge amounts of weight. But then he found, after they lost all this weight, they disappeared from the program. A lot of people disappeared from the program after they were so successful, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. So he started talking to people, and one woman said, you know, I was sexually abused as a child. And it thought, well, that's something. But then the next week, another one said the same thing. The next week, another one said the same thing. So he started getting this pattern that the people who were backing out were abused as children. And it turns out what he realized later was that the eating was a defense for them. It made them safe, made them feel safe from this prior abuse that was just sitting inside and percolating. So he got together, he started, he did a little study, I think, to begin with on his own, where he looked at um, what are these different kinds of, of scores, child adversive scores, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, I think those 10 that they've boiled it down to now. And he got some interesting results. Then he went to CDC. The two got together and they did this huge study of 17,000 people where they looked at um, the scores for these ACEs questions. And at that time, it was a huge questionnaire. But they boiled those, all those questions in that huge questionnaire down to about 10 questions now. And you can find them online just about any place. We can leave a link in the low bar, I guess, for for where people go, can go and look at it. And you can do a self-scoring. And you go through the 10, and you say, yeah, I had that one. No, 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 yes, no, 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 no. And then you come up with, oh, I, I have an ACEs score of 2, or 3, or 0, or 7. And that score tells you a huge amount. Because what they're finding is that the more higher your ACEs score is, the more likely you're going to have a lot of trouble. Whether it's physical trouble, or or suicidal trouble, or all kinds of things. I mean, it's the the research is fascinating, where they've they've judged people's ACEs score, and then they've put the uh, instance of different diseases next to it. And for instance, heart disease. Those who had an ACEs score of zero, it's like you know, small amount. ACEs score of one is a little bit bigger. It's two. And as you go up to an ACE score of six or seven, the heart disease is a huge amount. So it's like they're finding this is connected to everything. And so that's that's why it's so critical and important to me. And the other thing is it's so easy, so easy for people to take that and to realize, oh, you know, I've got an ACE score of X and then act accordingly. Because if you've got one that's four or five or above, get to a good therapist. You know, there are ways that we can work with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we want people to be aware of the dangers of, of smoking and excessive fatty food consumption and lack yeah. of exercise and sitting while you work. But we don't talk to people about the direct health consequences, um, both sort of internal to your systems and as part of your decision-making processes. Uh, child abuse is a massive, massive predictor, uh, yeah. especially if not known and not dealt with. I mean, I went to therapy yes. for years uh, as a result of a difficult childhood, and it has a huge impact yes. and changes things considerably. But um, we don't tell people about this. Uh, and um, I think the reasons are partly to do with, you know, again, protecting women, because women are responsible still for a significant proportion of child raising. And women, of course, choose uh, the, the men that they have children with uh, in almost all situations and circumstances. So we're protecting people from the negative health consequences and information about it, because yes. we want to protect women and bad decisions women may have made as mothers, uh, yes. as wives to be and who they uh, have as the father of their children. So and it's dose dependent, right? It's not just like, well, it sort of staggers up. It's like, you know, for instance, if you're going to smoke, 
book, Bad Childhood predicts that uh, very, very consistently. Alcohol abuse, promiscuity, uh, getting STDs, uh, domestic abuse, violence, criminality, all of these things are dose dependent. And I am going to mention these because uh, they are so important. And again, these don't, they're not going to define who you are, but you just want to have these risk factors. The way I sort of um, think of it and have talked about it before in this show, Tom, is to say, look, if you have a family history of heart disease, you want to know that so that you don't get heart disease, right? So if you have a family history of heart disease, you want to know that so you can adjust your eating, your health habits, your exercise habits, whatever it is you can do, you have information about these things, not to surrender to history, but to break from history. So uh, these are the 10 that um, are floating around at the moment. Uh, This is things that you may have experienced as a child. One, verbal abuse and threats. Two, physical abuse, non-spanking. I actually think that's going to change because the research that's coming out these days seems to be that spanking and beatings are physiologically and psychologically hard to distinguish for children, but that's the way it is right now. Uh, Number three, did you experience molestation or sex, uh, premature sexual experiences, of course, or rape? Uh, Four, no family love or support. Five, neglect, not enough food, dirty clothes, no protection or medical treatment. Six, parents divorced. I mean, that's a, so common now. What is it you point out? 39% of American kids growing up without uh, a father in the house. Yeah. Physical abuse towards female adults. Ah, there's a bit of gynocentrism there, but you oh, know, we'll have to hold our nose and keep going. Yeah, that uh, eight. Yeah, eight. Lived with alcoholic or drug user. Nine. Household member depressed, mentally ill, or suicide attempt. And 10, household member in prison. Now, with seven, you know, physical abuse towards female adults, I'm going to assume that it's not just gynocentrism that they don't care about the men, but I think they're going to assume because of our biology and because of our popular culture, it's going to be more traumatic viewing uh, physical abuse towards a female adult uh, rather than a male, but that's where it stands at the moment. So I gave them a pass because it was so long ago. I mean, when they first started these questions and they had to keep the same questions in the watered down thing. I mean, it was in the 90s sometimes, and I don't think they knew then as much about domestic violence as we know now. Right, that it's generally 50-50, uh, and sometimes it's initiated more by the woman. Yes. Uh, but the men, the men, the man generally um, has the disadvantage of if there's a sort of mutual slugfest, it's uh, almost always the man who's going to get arrested. So you uh, you're kind of uh, stuck yeah. there. Yeah. Now, how is... I mean, you obviously are, are dealing with a lot of men and, and are more immersed in the uh, movement than I am. So, Tom, where do things stand with regards to men's consciousness of of male issues, uh, of men's rights issues and so on? Where is the state of masculinity? Because I find it to be quite a fascinating uh, topic at the moment. Yes, it is fascinating. And uh, I'm happy to say that I think we're on the verge of something new. And that is the red pill is coming out in in, uh, October. Do you know about the red pill movie? No. You don't know about that? As a movie that Cassie J did of Jaybird Productions. She's an award-winning documentary person. And she went around and interviewed all sorts of men's rights people around the country and is putting together a movie about her experience and what happened. And it, I think, is going to open the door to a lot of understanding about what we're talking about. You know, it's uh, and that's going to happen October 7th. It opens in uh, New York City and the 14th. It opens in Los Angeles. So. Uh, keep your fingers crossed. We'll see what comes up with that. But uh, and that, the amount of is, information sharing between and among men is uh, really fascinating at, at the moment. I mean, from from the 1930s, I think you know, if people want to sort of understand the degree to which men sacrifice themselves for their uh, for the women and children and their society as a whole, uh, you know, men were dying of black lung, men were dying in in machine accidents, men were dying with with uh, all sorts of farming accidents and so on. 
And what came out first? Labor-saving devices for women or life-saving devices for men? Yes. Well, it yeah. was, you know, well, okay, we, we can expend 12 guys to, to <laughs> produce this washing machine because that's going to raise the sexual market value of the one guy who survives the production line. So Indeed. Uh, that, that <laughs> is some pretty that, chilling actually. stuff. I'm sorry? You know, it's worse than that because in the, uh, the first days of industrialization, the laws that came out were to protect women and children, not the men. So if right. you were a man in a factory, too bad, hand cut, cut off, so much. You know, but the women and children, there were laws to protect them. <laughs> but I think that the amount of information sharing that's out there now, I mean, uh, the, the men going their own way movement, which yes. I find quite powerful because oh, men are great. looking at society and you can make the case that there's a, certainly a biological imperative to protect society, but you have to really like that society. You're not going to protect someone or, or something or some structure that you don't like. And yeah. I think that there used to be rewards for men who sacrificed. Exactly. Uh, and now there seem to be scorn and punishment for men who even think of sacrificing. The sacrifice is still demanded because, yes. of course, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of women's groups uh, want bigger government and more spending. Yes. And it's mostly men who are contributing to the tax rolls compared to women. So yes. men are still supposed to sacrifice. You know, my body, my choice. Oh, your wallet? Well, still my choice. But um, <laughs> so men are still supposed to sacrifice, but they're not getting the praise yes. that they used to get. They're not getting the statues. Yes. They're not getting the honor. They're not getting the 21-gun yes. salute. They're not getting the ticket tape parades. They're being scorned, and the level of sacrifice is to some degree, at least financially, in terms of the wealth transfer enabled by the state, men are still being scorned and attacked and reviled and cast down and, and aspersions and insulted. But the level of financial sacrifice is ratcheting up. And I think that combination yes. is finally breaking men, men out of the vagina spell and having them ask that fundamental question that men are very good at asking, what's in this for me? Yes. And, you know, the, the fuel for masculinity is respect and admiration. And men are getting almost none of that. In fact, they're getting demonization. And that's going to, that hopefully won't take long before men start recoiling from that. Because it's ridiculous. Men are good. Oh, men are, are necessary in this. And it's a funny kind of thing because, again, when I was a, a kid growing up, there was, um, you know, this, this, this trope, the war of the sexes, which, you know, apparently never could be won because there's way too much fraternization with the enemy. But this war between the sexes, I never really understood it. I mean, it seems to me that men and women, not just physically, but psychologically, like, like a jigsaw puzzle, fit together well, and evolution has evolved us to be complementary, and women have their wonderful strengths and abilities and deficiencies, and men have their wonderful strengths and abilities and deficiencies. But nature would not bring us up to be in opposition, I think, foundationally. But it somehow right. has become that way, that men and women have been turned against each other, and in that vacuum of gender separation rushes the power of the state and 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 money uh, manipulation and and vote yes. buying and so on and I, yes. I don't know if men and women are just set against each other in oh. that old marxist dream as if you destroy the family uh, we can control society i think it's a bastardization of gynocentrism because you know the whole feminist idea is in harmony with gynocentrism more things for women protect women take care of women whereas the whole idea of men and men having compassion and choice goes against the grain of the gynocentrism you know men aren't supposed to do that but women are so you know feminists have basically a downhill battle they they roll downhill whereas men have an uphill battle because of gynocentrism all right and as that old um 
Uh, it's sort of a cliche, although I've experienced it myself directly. When I was uh, younger, uh, you hold the door open for a woman. She says, thank you. And now, of course, sometimes you'll get a dirty look and I can do it myself. <laughs> okay, well, um, great. Yes. Then I guess you won't need my tax money then because yeah, you know, really? I mean, the welfare state is the welfare state has been ably and I think mathematically accurately characterized as a single mother state. So yeah. if women can do it themselves, then why don't they need all this money from the government that is populated and largely funded by men? It seems an odd sort of independence. I'd love to know the answer to that one. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I think we've given people enough to chew on. And the first time round, uh, I, I strongly urge uh, listeners uh, and watchers to to this conversation. We've put some, you know, if you've not heard some of this stuff before, we've certainly put some bugs in your brain. Uh, and uh, don't just let it pass. You know, oh, that was interesting. Squirrel. Right? Just just uh, <laughs> uh, uh, follow up. Go to menorgood.com. There's lots of resources on the web for people to figure this out. Uh, we'll put links to uh, Tom and I's speech from Detroit a couple of years ago. And um, these are very, very important issues. I really believe that the future of civilization uh, does hang on people really understanding these issues. And in particular, men, to a degree, women as well. You know, women who love men, women who care about men. Uh, these are um, risks and dangers that the men you love are facing. So it is a male and female issue to start to understand some of the stuff. And the consequences of avoiding it, I think, can be very catastrophic. So uh, thanks so much for your time today, Tom. A great pleasure to chat. Uh, just remind people, please go to menaregood.com uh, for more of uh, Tom's work. And uh, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great, Stefan. Thank you for having me.